I realized uh, as I, I went back to my seat while ago that I, I did a terrible job um, being a salesman, and so I need to do a better job of that. I'm sorry. Uh, we don't want to just invite you to be a part of a men's study or a women's study or a discipleship study. Uh, we want to, to, to remind you what those those things are actually all about. The men's study, uh, it's, a, it's based on a book called Play the Man by Mark Batterson. Um, it's, a, it's a good little book for sure. Uh, but for us men, it's a, it's a study on what it means to be a godly man, what that looks like as a father, grandfather, um, even just a, a mentor in this world. As you know, uh, that idea of manhood is very much non-existent in our world. Uh, it, the world has destroyed that on purpose. And uh, we, as Christian men, need to be different than that. And so, so that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, the women are doing a, a, a study called Seamless. It has to do with how the Bible itself is one seamless story. And they're going to be studying that together. And the discipleship study is just teaching us how to be disciples, how to teach others to be disciples, to bring people. We are called to make disciples. That's what we're called to do. And uh, we're very poorly equipped sometimes to do that. And so that study, here's the great news. Um, We ordered kind of a set number of books way back when saying, God, we'd love to at least have this many people. And since then, we've had to order books three more times. So that's a great thing, but that still leaves some of you out. And not every, we know every week somebody new is back, um, even for the first time sometimes. And so we want to make sure that you get specifically invited um, to be a part of those. It's kind of a new thing. We just started it last fall, so we're still trying to make it a habit around here to get together for these six-week sessions um, a couple times a year to do this this part of study. Then eventually we'll do that, and then we'll also have small groups going on throughout the year as well. And so it's all part of a, a, a transition, a formation of, of the culture around here as we long to study deeper and grow closer together uh, in Christ. And so, so just keep that in mind. The other thing that I needed to mention today was that uh, this is the, the final week to officially sign up in advance. Um, we were putting together this group. We're calling the A-team. I don't know if Gareth has access to that graphic still from last week or not, but uh, the A-team, the, the altar team, if you will, a group of people that we're going to meet with and just kind of help, help them understand and, and, and understand the purpose of meeting with people that come forward, meeting with people that need prayer um, during a service and things like that, kind of that initial response team um, to meet with those individuals and pray with people and things like that. Um, we're excited for that. We've already got some people signed up. Nobody else in addition, signed up last week. So you're like, well, I don't know. That means you're supposed to this week. We're going to take some time. We're going to meet with that group of people specifically and just talk about this and, and see if there's anybody else that would like any additional training and then talk about what that might look like moving forward. We would love to have a group of people here uh, that are not just willing to do that, but desire to meet with people in those times of need, um, especially, all right? So, so we want to mention that one last time. If you would like to be a member of that A-team or, like I said, sign up for one of those three classes, that Connect card in those seat backs in front of you, the perfect place to, to sign up for that. Um, if you're just visiting and, and we don't know you know you yet, please take a moment and fill out that Connect card. Uh, that's, the, that's the only way, for the most part, that we have to instantly follow up with you and connect with you and, and ask questions and, and see if you have questions for us. It's so important that we, we establish that line of communication communication with one another. Some of you haven't been here in a while, and as a result, I want to make sure you know these are out there. We've ordered some more. These are Luke journals. It is just the book of Luke all by itself. Um, Some of us run out of uh, room in the margins of our Bibles. Some of us um, still hear our mom's or grandmom's voice in the background saying, don't write in your Bible. 
Did anyone have that experience as a child, right? Okay, so if that's you, this is for you. It's a great way to follow along with where we are, especially with the way we're studying this time on the way through, through Luke. If you don't have one yet, grab one on your way out. We purchased these for you guys, um, and we, we found some more. Now, they're kind of out of print now. They exist on Amazon, but they're really expensive there, so I got to look other places. Um, and so just want to let you know that's there. <sighs> so how are you? Yeah? Yeah? Just take a deep breath now. Just relax. All the details out of the way, and now we get to dive in to God's Word. It's an exciting morning. Father God, as we open your Word and we study together in this this last week of the study of of these miracles that are recorded in Luke, I, I pray that we never forget about some of the simplest miracles that exist around us, starting with life itself. Father, every breath we take is miraculous, yet we take it for granted. And so, Father, we study these specific interactions and these people. Father, open our minds, open our hearts to what you would have us hear, what you would have us receive. Challenge us this morning with your word to be different than who we were when we arrived. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Believe it or not, I, I hate to mention these numbers because some people are like, oh, I can't believe. 16 weeks now. 16 weeks now we've been in the book of Luke. It's kind of crazy, but we started in September right? That time goes so fast when you go, oh, wow, it was that long? Yeah, it's crazy how fast time goes. But as I'll tell you, as I told you at the beginning, I've never, ever done a study this way before. Um, I've done studies based on topics and themes throughout a book of the Bible. I've, I've done studies based on the miracles of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, absolutely. You know that I love doing studies from beginning to end, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, throughout a book of the Bible. It's one of my favorite ways to study and to teach, uh, learning how, how God reveals his scripture to us and then how to apply it to our everyday lives. But I've never gone through a book like we are right now, where we study sections of it all the way through and then go back and study more sections. We started a long time ago with John the Baptist and Jesus and their birth stories, because Luke is the place that records both of those. We, we studied the beginnings of both of their ministries, and then we shifted gears just a little bit and moved on to just Jesus and his preparation for ministry, his preparation to become Well, Jesus, really. I mean, that's what he was doing, right? At least Jesus, we know him. Now we've gone through basically the whole letter of Luke right now, his book, and we've studied nearly all of the miracles that are recorded in this book. Now, there's a few that I've left out intentionally because they tie so well in with the stories that we'll study a little bit later on in the book. Next week, next week, we're going to rewind all the way back to chapter 4 of Luke is where we'll be next week. The first recorded teaching of Jesus in the book of Luke. Now, I'm going to tell you, and this is honest to goodness truth, it was so, so hard to skip this teaching when we went through the miracles because it is so foundational. It's so important to everything that Jesus did after that moment, and actually even a little prior to that moment. We'll talk about that next week. Then we're going to just continue going on through the book of Luke and learning about what Jesus actually taught. This is so important in the world in which we live, because the world in which we live, A, doesn't care what Jesus said, 
Uh, B, um, they don't bother to do anything that Jesus really said. But what the world really loves to do is twist what Jesus said into what they want him to say that aligns with their feelings or their ideas or their thoughts. And so each one of those has their own dangers in life. Absolutely, it does. That's why it's so important for us to go through his teachings together, to study them together. But that's also why it's so important for you to go to the Word of God and open it up and read it for yourself and study the teachings of Jesus and learn them. But that's also why it's so important that when you come across the teaching of Jesus that you don't fully understand, to ask questions. Don't just leave those things hanging. Ask questions about things you don't understand so that we can grow to know Him even better. All right, so we're going to finish up here. These, these miracles are a little different um, today. They're kind of scattered throughout the rest of the book of Luke. The first one comes from Luke chapter 13. So we'll start in Luke 13, then go to 17, and then 18 today, as the three places will be. But the first miracle is in Luke chapter 13. They're just sprinkled in, if you will, throughout the remainder of Luke. After chapter 9, Luke kind of shifts gears, and he really only focuses on three things. One, Jesus resolutely sets his face toward Jerusalem. It's called the travel narrative. It's his, his last trip to Jerusalem before his execution, ultimately. And most of what Luke records are just the teachings and parables of Jesus throughout the rest of that book. But this particular miracle in Luke chapter 13 has special significance because of when and where it took place. All right? So verse 10, chapter 13, it says, on the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Now, at this point in Jesus's ministry, I personally find it amazing that Jesus was doing this. Now, not that he was teaching on the Sabbath or that he was teaching in the synagogue, but that he was allowed to teach on the Sabbath in the synagogue. You see, the religious leaders are already plotting. They're already planning on how to get rid of Jesus, his influence, if nothing else, but maybe him completely. Why were they still allowing him to speak in such an open and public space, a space that they controlled who could and could not speak? Why would they do that? It seems so strange in our culture. Why? Because what do we do in our culture when we don't agree with someone? We cancel them. Yeah, we delete them. We get them off of our platform. We don't want to listen to what they have to say, so we, we don't allow that now. But back then they did. It's an interesting thought if you think about culture, but that's another story for another day. In their culture, it was welcome. Traveling rabbis would often come and be given a chance to speak in the synagogues. And here's another little thing, just so you know. Jesus drew crowds. <laughs> What religious leader didn't want his church to be full, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, it wasn't such a bad thing. And here's the thing. For the most part, the religious leaders couldn't really dispute what he was saying. Um, his teaching was, was clear, and it was concise, and it was always in agreement with scriptures. And any matter that they disputed with him, he was able to correct them. Now, did they like that? <laughs> no, of course not. But was he right? Yeah. Yeah, they hated to admit it, but yeah, even when they argued, they knew the right answer. Plus, if they prevented him from speaking, then what would that have done? Well, just like in our world today, it draws more attention to him and likely would have drawn more attention to their plan to potentially get rid of him. So things to think about. Verse 11, and a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. This is a poor, suffering woman. The Greek words that Luke uses indicate that this was called a spirit of weakness. We don't really know what that means. She was unable to fully stand up. She had to stoop 
all of the time. It was a debilitating condition. Now, Luke adds that it was caused by a demon of some type. There's not really any more explanation than that. So here's what really matters. Jesus saw this woman, this woman who was faithfully attending synagogue, coming to worship in spite of her condition. 18 years of suffering, and she comes to synagogue every week. How many of us miss because of fill in the blank? Oh, maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night. (laughs) Just something to consider. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and he said to her, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. You see, Jesus had compassion on her. Why? He sets her free. Why? Something he longs to do for every single one of us as well. This woman, did she approach Jesus? Did she ask Jesus for help? <laughs> Apparently, no. She, she didn't say a thing. What did she do? She showed her faith. How did she show her faith? By being there. Amen. Simply by being there. Her faith in God is demonstrated by her faithful presence at synagogue, despite the obstacles, despite the discomfort she's been in for the last 18 years. So Jesus chooses to set her free on the Sabbath. Now, that's an important part of this message that he's going to convey to the religious leaders, beginning in verse 14. It says they were indignant. That's a big word. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. This is the best part. The synagogue leader didn't like pull Jesus aside. Like the synagogue leader, after Jesus sat down from doing his thing, stood up and addressed the whole crowd. And this is what he has to say. Hey, hey, everybody, there's six days. There's six days for work. So when you, when you need healed, I need you to come to the synagogue on one of those six days. Don't bother with us this healing stuff on the Sabbath. Now, I read that and I go, what? on earth was their problem? Like, get over yourself. What is the big deal? I've just never understood why that was such a big deal. It seems like such a good thing. A woman was just healed. Shouldn't there be praise for the God who healed her? Shouldn't there be encouragement for the woman that's just been healed? Instead, what do they do? They attack not just the healer, but everyone else there as well. Don't bother us with your healings on this Sabbath. Come, There's six other days for business like that. It's an interesting thought. Here's the problem. For us personally, so much is lost because we don't set aside time for anything in our culture. Now, did they take it too far? Yeah, we'll discuss that here in a minute. But the Jewish faith, there was such observance, such appreciation, such respect for what God wanted them, desired them, commanded them to do, to specifically and completely set aside time for him and a time to rest. Now, we don't know this because we're Americans, but that's actually too essential part of our human existence. God created our bodies to need those two things, and we don't get them. We suffer physically, mentally, emotionally, and yes, spiritually when we don't take the time, make the time for those things. They viewed what Jesus was doing as work Well, Jesus said a long time ago, he came to set the captives free. This woman had been held captive for 18 years. What would one more day matter? See, according to the Jewish leaders, it wouldn't. What's one more day? She's been suffering for 18 years. Can't she wait till Sunday? Because their Sabbath was Saturday. Literally, that was their thinking. That made sense to them. So Jesus answered them, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then why should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So when he said all this, his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted 
with the wonderful things that he had to say. So Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, okay, guys, um, you're telling me, you're telling me this. You're telling me it's okay for you to lead your livestock out to water, but it's not okay to free a daughter of Abraham from the binds of Satan? Really? You really believe that? And the problem is, the answer to the question is, yes. They really believed that. Like they really, truly did. From their perspective, that was true. We don't understand because we don't understand how strict their law was. It was debated as to whether it was even okay to give a medical service on the Sabbath. The debate was settled. If the condition was life-threatening, then you could offer medical service. If it was not, then you could not. And in their view, this woman was not on the verge of dying, so why bother? She could come back tomorrow. So Jesus takes them down a road that they would understand. He brings up the oxen and the donkey. Now, this is all written down. You can look it up if you want. You can go search Mishnah. Search that word Mishnah. You can go read. It's called the Oral Torah. And here's what it was. It wasn't the Jewish law. It was an explanation of the Jewish law, a definition of the Jewish law, if you will. It went through all the Ten Commandments and other rules that Moses gave them, and it expanded them. It defined them so people could understand. It said that animals could not go out on the, or could go out on the Sabbath, but it restricts how much they could carry. It even told you what kind of knot you could use to tie up a donkey or an oxen to keep them from wandering off. It told you how far you could go from your home to get the animal water. In that case, it was 2,000 cubits or six-tenths of a mile is how far you could travel to get your animal water. Now, the funny thing is they worked out ways around those rules so that they stayed within them. That's all interesting to read if you're curious but not necessary to share with you today. The detail was insane, and this is why it was such a big deal. To them, what Jesus did seemed like such an obvious, grievous offense. So Jesus argues with them from the lesser, the point of the animal, to the greater, the human being. Okay, so it's okay to prevent an animal from suffering, not getting enough water. If it's okay for that on the Sabbath, then how much more should it be okay to help a human being who is suffering? It says they were humiliated. They walked away with their tail between their legs. They knew he was right. They were looking to pick a fight to discredit Jesus, and Jesus just simply showed them the foolishness of their argument. And he did so by referencing all the way back to the original law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, it says this, "'Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God has commanded you, on six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God.'" On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor male or female servant, nor ox nor donkey nor any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Why? Why were they to observe the Sabbath? To remember, to remember and celebrate the freedom that God gave them from their bondage. And you know what? We are commanded to do no less. We are commanded to gather and to remember the freedom that God has given us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That is why it is so important to gather every week and give thanks. Not that we shouldn't give thanks every day. We should. We should awake every morning giving thanks to God for every breath that we have. But God specifically sets aside a time and says, you need to set aside this time and you need to gather and you need to worship me for what I've done for you. He's very specific about this. 
So in some ways, we would do well to have that same level of devotion to something that God has set aside for us to do, that Jesus uses this occasion to free this woman in front of a large gathering. And for the first time in 18 years now, this woman was truly able to observe the Sabbath. Because any of you who've ever been suffering know it's really hard to relax, to rest, to even be thankful if you're suffering. And she was able to do that. Just imagine her peace. Do you think she went to church the next week? <laughs> yeah. She never missed a Sunday before. That doesn't sound like I don't think she missed another one the rest of her life. The next miracle we take is a totally different scenario. It's like I said, they're all just sprinkled in. This is in chapter 17 of Luke, so you probably got to turn about two pages in your Bible, depending on how big the font is. They're on a road. They're on a road outside Jerusalem. They're approaching Jerusalem again. This is Jesus' last trip, final trip to Jerusalem that he's making. Jesus and the disciples, they encounter a group of lepers, people with leprosy, not the leprosy we know today. It was an assortment of skin conditions that got grouped into that category in biblical terms. Somehow, someway, these men knew who Jesus was. I still wonder how that worked. You know, I'm an old camp guy, so did Jesus have a t-shirt that says, like, I am Jesus, you know? And so they just saw him. Oh, hey, there's Jesus. I don't know. Maybe the disciples, they haven't put this in the chosen yet. Maybe the disciples had a banner and they just put it over Jesus, every, Jesus of Nazareth, everywhere he walked. I don't know what happened. But these lepers, somehow, they would have been a considerable distance away, and they knew that that was Jesus. So that leaves one other option. Is it possible, just possible maybe, that the Spirit of God stirred within them something that allowed them to realize that they were in the presence of the Messiah? And I want to ask you, have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever felt the presence of God near to you? If not, I pray that you do maybe even today because he could make that happen. We're in Luke chapter 17 now, verse 11 is where this one starts. We're going to read the whole narrative together and then go back and pick it apart. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village and 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. When they saw him, he said, go, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one has returned to give praise to God except this foreigner. Then he said to him, arise and go, your faith has made you well. Now, curiously enough, this miracle is only recorded in the book of Luke. No one else recorded that, which leads me to ask a question. Where did he get the story? The other three disciples or other three writers didn't include this story. So where did he get it? If it wasn't important for them enough to include, where, where did he, how did he hear it? What made the difference for him specifically? Why, how does it fit in Luke's goal of helping the reader be fully convinced of the truths of Jesus? So here we go. For starters, there's a lot of tension in this story. We don't sense it because we're not Jewish but there is for them. It's near Samaria. The Jews avoided this territory and these people at all costs, which is exactly why Jesus keeps weaving through, around, and near that territory every time he travels that direction. Second, these are lepers, outcasts with a skin disease that society has banished to the outskirts of town. Third, the main character, as we learn, is a Samaritan. Now, truthfully, we don't know the ethnicities of the other nine, but we 
think they're outsiders by what, or they're probably Jewish by Jesus' response to saying this one, this one is a foreigner. He's a Samaritan. So the fact that they speak of this one man in this completely isolated instance speaks volumes to the reader about our Jesus. It says, these men approach Jesus. Now, under normal circumstances, this group of men couldn't approach anyone. They were forced to stay as far away as they possibly could, yet somehow, some way, they felt like they could get nearer to Jesus. Question for you, what does that tell you about our Jesus? <laughs> Who does he encourage to come near to him today? There's a great, great verse. Who can approach his throne of grace with confidence? Hebrews 4, 16, it says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, those words would have been written long after this event took place, but is that not exactly what these men are doing? approaching his throne of grace, begging for mercy. They cry out, and Jesus, even from a distance, gives them the relief they seek. He shows them compassion. He restores them. He heals them, but he does so in a very different way. He doesn't do it instantaneously. He tells them, go to the priest, and as they went, they were healed. In other words, these men had to hear Jesus and go, okay, and leave in faith, believing that he would actually heal them. It didn't happen like that. I believe if they would all just stood there and stared at him, none a single one of them would have been healed. He gave them a direction, go do this. And they said, okay. And as they went, they were healed. Now, I can imagine these men try to do this with me. There's 10 of them. They, they kind of question probably what Jesus is telling them. And now they start walking toward the temple, which they're not allowed to go to because they're unclean. And as they're walking along, they begin to notice something changing. And they look at each other and they look at themselves and they're gradually beginning to heal. And next thing you know, it's gone and the pain is gone. And they look at each other like, are you kidding me? Did this really just happen? They would have instantly started rejoicing. And as they noticed this, they probably would have started walking just a little faster toward the temple, wouldn't they? Imagine their minds, they begin to think, they begin to plan about everything that they would now be able to do. No more judgment from others, no more exclusion from society, no more begging from others. How excited they would have been as they made that way to the temple, to the priest, planning all of their futures, getting all their families back, getting everything back in line. And then all of a sudden, one stops. Instantly, he stops and he fully realizes what has happened to him. I believe that man, I know I would have been, would have been overwhelmed with emotion in that moment. And he could not believe an impossible dream had just come true. He had been destined for an entire life of pain and suffering and rejection. Now suddenly everything changed. Why? How? Oh, wait, it was that man. It was that man. Who was that man? the same question the disciples asked when they were in the boat and Jesus calmed the storm. Undoubtedly, the same question the masses asked as Jesus performed countless other signs and wonders. But you know what? This man didn't see any of those signs or wonders. You know why? Because he couldn't be a part of the crowd. This man hadn't heard any of Jesus's teachings. You know why? Because he had to keep his distance from all of the other people. But now, as a result of a distant 
cry for help in an encounter with Jesus. He probably still doesn't fully understand who Jesus is, but he can't help but go back and thank him. In the passage, it says that he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. This man was a mess with gratitude. He can't believe he's actually healed. He cannot believe he has a new life. He cannot believe that this Jewish rabbi would heal him in the first place because, after all, he is a Samaritan. Now, the other nine, we we always throw them under the bus. They went on their way rejoicing. Technically speaking, they followed Jesus' directions, did they not? They did exactly what Jesus told them to do, but see, the one came back. The others went ahead with the new life that that Jesus had had given them. One came back to praise the one who gave him this new life. Nine resumed their old ways of life, miraculously healed, but you see, this one came back and began a new life in Jesus. Now, as I read this a few weeks ago and was preparing this, there's so many things that we could discuss in this story, but there was one question that God literally gave me because I've never thought about it before in this way to ask. And that's this. Are we, believers in the room and watching online today, are we the one or are we the nine? Now, you might say, well, no, we've all gathered together, so clearly they're one. Hold that thought just a moment. We're all blessed. None of us could argue that. Look at all that we have. (laughs) Some of us have a few more things than others, but our God has been great. He's been incredible. He's been magnificent to us. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then he's given you even greater things out of forgiveness and grace and mercy and that restored relationship to God. And of course, salvation and an eternity with him in heaven. And I know, I'm not questioning at all that we are grateful for that. I believe every single one of us is grateful for what God has done for each of us. And one of the ways that we show that is is by showing up at places like this. But have we, like the one, gone back before our God and thrown ourselves before him to express the depths of our gratefulness? Do we come to this place in awe and wonder of what he has done and is doing in our lives today? Do we come with a desire to serve and to love others in the same way that he has shown his love to us? Do we leave here seeking to do his will in every area of our lives, seeking to share him with all of those that he's placed around us from family to friends to neighbors to to co-workers? Are we individually the one who returned to praise Jesus for his indescribable gift? 2 Corinthians 9, 15. You see, as the bride of Christ, do we just take what God has given us for granted and just go on with life. Yes, yeah, sure, we meet each Sunday to carry on the tradition of meeting each Sunday. Or is that even that important? Do we truly set it aside? Are we committed to remembering the Sabbath and praising God on it, remembering that its greatest purpose is to give thanks what God, for what God has done for us? Or do we just dismiss it as another gathering that, you know what, uh, we can miss for about any possible reason. It'll be there next Sunday. I can go back then. Or will we be the one that comes every chance we get before the throne of God with great gratitude and desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven? Are we full steam ahead pursuing the vision of the church of Christ? If not, why? 
What is it that's stopping us from doing this? Jesus already told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Not against me. Oh, they could defeat me, sure. But not his bride. To offer him the praise that only he is worthy of and dedicate ourselves to seeking and saving the lost in whatever way he calls us to. There's a difference between the nine and the one, and we, church, must be the one. We're going to close today with this final miracle in this part of the series before we switch to the teachings next week. Have I mentioned how excited I am about that first teaching next week? Hopefully I have. Hopefully you get that. In this scene, we, we see another man Another man that society has cast aside, it's the same story as so many of the people. Jesus' help, his physical limitations prevented him from living anything close to a normal life. He was left along the side of the road to beg. He, he, we, we may not understand this because of what we see today, but this man literally was begging for his existence. If he didn't get things, he would die and no one would care. <laughs> There was no safety net to provide for people like that in that culture unless you had a family member or some other connection to care for you. You were left on your own. So when you listen to the opening of the story, keep those things in mind. We're in Luke chapter 18, so maybe a page away from where you just were. But we begin in verse 35 is where we'll start this message. As Jesus approached Jericho now, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, hey, what's going on? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, not Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Much like the lepers, I got to know, how did this guy know who Jesus was? Not just his name, but why did he have any belief that this man, Jesus, could help him? Obviously, he'd heard about Jesus somehow, But where did his faith come from? What reason did he have to believe in this Jesus? I want to pause there, and I want to give you thought for a moment here. When you share Jesus with your friends, family, relatives, etc., coworkers, neighbors, people that you meet that are suffering that don't know Jesus, when you share your Jesus and what he has done for you and in your life with them, regardless of whether they believe in that moment, you've now shared with them exactly what this guy had, knowledge. He's heard about this Jesus, and he's heard about this Jesus from some people that made him think that maybe, just maybe, this Jesus could help him too. When you share your story with people, you give them hope for this world. Even if they don't accept that hope in that moment, you give them hope because you have it. And they see it in you, and they watch it in you, and when they get to the point where the Spirit is ready to move in them, they're going to place their hope in that same Jesus you have. Why? Because you shared your story with them. If you never share your story, they may never have that hope. Keep that in mind. (laughs) This man calls out to Jesus and he says, son of David. Now that's a messianic title. No one calls him that. His own disciples did not call him son of David. And don't forget the man is blind. He can't even see Jesus is approaching. What's that tell you? (laughs) Even the blind can sense the presence of the Messiah? It's an interesting thought. Verse 39, those who led the way, those kind of leading the Jesus, it might have even been the disciples, we don't know, told the man to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man is crying out for help. And basically everyone around him says, hey man, shut up. Just shut up. Jesus doesn't care about you. Don't bother him with your problem. He has more important things to do. No, he doesn't. 
He wants to listen to you. He wants to know your problems. He wants to be a part of every part of your life. Don't ever hesitate to ask. Don't ever think your problems aren't significant enough for Jesus to want to listen to you. That is a lie from hell itself. Do not believe it, people, because I talked to two. Well, I just don't want to bother people with this burden or that problem. No. No, that's not the way it works. And Jesus demonstrates. He stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that's an interesting question for Jesus to ask, and I want you to understand why it's so important. He specifically asks the man, tell me, really, exactly what is it that you need from me? Remember, Jesus already knows A, and in this case, it was pretty obvious. The man was blind. What do you think he wants, Jesus? Why did he ask? Here's why I ask. If the man refuses to specifically ask Jesus for exactly what he needs, then doesn't it stand to reason that he probably doesn't believe that Jesus could heal him? Of course. If the man will not ask Jesus for the specific thing, then does he really believe? I want to apply that same question to us. If we will not come to God with our specific requests, then are we doubting that God can or will ever answer them? And the man, of course, replies instantly, Lord, I want to see. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> he replied, the man doesn't hesitate. He believes not just that Jesus can heal him, but that Jesus will heal him. He asks him believing. Now, this is where you and I probably get on the same page. Am I the only one in the room that struggles with that? Sure, I, I pray. But when I pray, do I really believe that God will move and that God will act? I'm not saying that God will always move or act in the way that I want him to. I'm not saying that at all. His will might be different than my desires. As a matter of fact, there's a good chance his will might be different than my desires. But does that mean we shouldn't come to him with our desires? I hear I've talked to people that struggle with this praying specifically, thinking they're being selfish in whatever that desire is. And the answer is no. No, he wants you to share the desires of your heart with him. And if we pray believing, then his will will be done. And if we pray believing, we will accept that will, whatever it is. This man makes it loud and clear, Lord, I want to see. It says his faith is great. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately his sight was restored. And he followed Jesus, praising God. And then when the people saw it, they're like, oh, wow, that blind guy can see. We were going to praise God as well. He received his sight and he followed Jesus, and then others got up with him and followed Jesus, praising him, at least for now. We have a good record that some of those people were likely in the streets a few weeks later shouting something very different at this Jesus who they saw perform this miracle. You see, we live in a world that claims that faith, especially in God, isn't really necessary. It's not needed and so the question becomes, as the world tells us to be quiet, to, to keep our faith to ourselves, will we? Or will we cry out all the louder like this blind man? As the world claims our faith is not needed and that the teachings of Jesus are outdated, will we cry out all the louder and declare our love for him and our love for them? As the world tells us that gatherings like this, that those aren't necessary, you don't need to do that, will we believe that or will we go continue to go for those 18 years of suffering, waiting on the Lord to do whatever he might do in our life, serving faithfully and seeing lives continue to be changed in spite of what the world tells us isn't possible. 
You see, throughout our study now of all these miracles of Jesus, he's completely revealed himself, who he is. He's demonstrated his power over every element of our physical world. He's demonstrated his power over the spiritual world, even over death, raising the dead back to life. And time and time again, Jesus shows us his compassion and his love for all people, from Samaritan to centurion to religious leaders to beggars along the street. He shows his loving kindness has no end. Soon, soon in the story, not where we're going, we're going backwards, but soon in the story, in the narrative of Luke, he's going to give up his very own life for anyone, anyone who believes and calls upon his name. Now, if you haven't taken time to really think about that lately, I would challenge you to do so because every time I think about that reality, that thought, it blows my mind that he would do that for everyone. His love knows no end. It has no boundaries. You cannot escape the love of God. However, you can reject it. You can choose to reject the love of God, and that seems so impossible. Why would anyone do that? And the answer truly is, I don't know, except for the fact that maybe they don't know. We've got to share it. So if you've not fully embraced that love of Jesus yet, then there's no better day than today. We're going to say that every week because we know that the Spirit of God can move at any time and people can come and connect with Him here. It's a safe place to do that. Maybe you claimed the love of God many, 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 many years ago, but this world and the events in it are causing you to question and wonder. And here's what I would do for you. I would tell you, don't hesitate. Ask your questions. Ask your questions of God. He is not afraid of your questions. Here's the problem, though. We humans love to ask our questions, but sometimes we don't like the answers that we get. So all I would ask is if you want to ask God questions, please do ask them all, but just be ready to receive his response, because it might not be what you want to hear. But then again, it's exactly what you need to hear. Don't ever forget that. Believers, will we cry out like the blind man when the world tells us to be quiet? Because we've got to. Will you fight for what is right in the eyes of God, even when it's in the opposition of the ways of man? Church as a whole, I began the new year with this, and you're going to hear this throughout the whole year. Will we forevermore declare together that Jesus is the most important thing that we all have in common as the body of Christ, as the church. No matter what comes our way, no what challenges await us, will we agree to put Jesus above everything else and pursue him in wherever he leads us? We may not agree on the path on how to get there. That doesn't matter if Jesus is at the front. Church, will we always agree to be the one that comes back and falls on our face before the throne of God in gratefulness for all that he has done for us. I would challenge you to respond that way today. Father, as we close this portion of the service and we begin contemplating the next as communion is on the horizon, none of us should have reason not to be thankful. As we remember that gift alone, the sacrifice you made for us, 
Father God, as we come before you today and we consider these things, these miracles that were performed, these lives that were changed, and we think, oh, wow, that would have been so neat to have my life changed. Wow, look at those examples. Father God, would you help each one of us individually realize that's already what you've done to us. If we've accepted you, then you've already changed our life every bit as drastically as it was for those people. You took us from a sinner, outcast, destined for an eternity apart from you to a loved child of yours. That transformation has taken place. Can we grow to appreciate that more and more and more every single day? To the point where not only do we return to give thanks, but Father, we beg others to return with us. We offer them what you've offered us willingly. Father, would you please help us unite around the cause and the name of your son, who he is, what he did, and what he's asked us to do, and place him first and foremost in our personal lives, in our family life, but in our spiritual walk together as the bride of Christ. Let you be the leader of that in everything we do in our flawed ways of man. Father, let's be pursuing you through those things and let's look past those flaws and focus on you, our goal. Father, we love you and we love this opportunity to be together and to worship.